0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, the global biopharmaceutical company behind a variety of cancer medicines with a pipeline of investigational therapies. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the Tobacco 21 laws with Dr. Abigail Friedman. Dr. Friedman is an assistant professor of public health and health policy at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine.
1: Abigail, let me start by asking the most relevant uh, and
2: perhaps basic questions. What exactly are the Tobacco 21 laws? That's a great place to start. Let's start with some terminology. So every state in the U.S. has a minimum legal sales age for tobacco products. It's typically 18. There are a few states with an age 19 limit. And what this really means is that retailers can't legally sell these products to individuals under that age. When a state or a local municipality raises their minimum legal sales age to 21, it's called a Tobacco 21 law. Okay, so where are we in the state of Connecticut? Connecticut has adopted um, a law. They voted on it actually just recently. Uh, It has not gone into effect yet. It'll go into effect in October. And so tell us more about that law. So in general... These laws vary drastically across states, right? They sound like they should all be the same, but some of them have enforcement restrictions that are well-defined, so fines, or maybe they can take away the licenses or suspend the licenses of retailers. Others don't. Some laws, like California's, give exemptions for military individuals who are over 18. Others don't. Some laws have grandfathering restrictions. So tell us more about the Connecticut law.
1: Um, So- I mean, Connecticut will have a
2: Tobacco 21 law. Yes. Connecticut's law will go into effect on October 1st. I can't tell you exactly how effective it will be, but I can talk to you a little bit about how effective the laws we've seen have been. Okay,
1: so let's start there. How effective have they been? I mean, it sounds like they all vary based on all of these restrictions. Tell me a little bit more about what makes a more effective law than a less effective law, because presumably we would hope that our legislators would have looked at said research and tried to make the most
2: effective law possible. So to give them some credit, there isn't that much research. In 2015, the Institute of Medicine released a simulation study, which basically means they have mathematical models and they make some assumptions and they put those into the models and it spits out an implication about what will happen to the smoking rate when the tobacco minimum legal sales age goes up. And that study said that we should expect a drastic reduction, about 12 percent, in the smoking rate of the generation that is exposed to that law and also over 200,000 premature deaths averted. So that's a general estimate, but it's still a simulation. This year, my colleagues and I put out two papers that actually estimated the effect of these laws based on the data. And it's based in one case on local laws only. So laws are at the su- that are at the sub-state level and in another on a mix of both local and state laws. And what we found in both cases is that Tobacco 21 laws are expected to reduce smoking among 18 to 20-year-olds.
1: Okay. So is tobacco smoking among 18 to 20-year-olds? year olds really a significant problem?
2: Yes. The vast majority of smokers take up smoking before age 21, and a substantive chunk of them do it between 18 and 20. This is more of a problem than just that age range. You might think that, well, we won't let them start before 21, and then they'll just start at 21, and it's not going to do anything at all. But if you talk to neuroscientists about this, what you will realize is that when you start smoking while you're in the midst of adolescent brain development, it doesn't take as much nicotine to get you hooked. And people who start smoking in their adolescence have a lot more trouble quitting. So, if we can get people who are going to experiment eventually to not do it until later, that alone could have a number of effects on the long run smoking rate in the population. And you have to remember smoking kills about one, or excuse me, smoking is responsible for about one in five adult deaths every year in the US. It's the leading cause of preventable mortality. It has been for about half a century. It's treated as relatively blase given the number of people who die from this. So averting the habit is potentially one of the best ways to save lives. So let me
1: you know, play the devil's advocate a little bit here and push back. Um, you know, you have a tobacco 21 law, and you say, OK, we're only going to sell cigarettes to people who are 21. That doesn't prevent me, as an 18-year-old, from getting my
2: 21-year-old buddy, To hand me a couple of cigarettes, right? Depends on the law, but for the most part, correct. So some laws also penalize possession, purchase, or use if you're under that age. The thing is, there's not great evidence that those laws work better than penalizing retail, and they're much harder to enforce. So what you're doing when you put a possession restriction or a purchase or a use restriction in there is basically spreading enforcement thin. It's not really great evidence that that's going to work. Now, here's the thing. Yes, your 21-year-old buddy could buy 18-year-old used cigarettes and give them to you. But now your 18-year-old classmate in a high school can't do that if you're 16. So one of the main arguments has actually been that this is to reduce the pathways to cigarette access among minors, even though technically minors weren't allowed to be sold them in the first place. What's interesting about these studies that my colleagues and I have put out is we've showed that there's an effect in the 18 to 20 age group, too. So you can think about it this way. What's probably going on here is that there are some kids who are going to find a way to try cigarettes or whatever tobacco product they want, regardless of what we do. And there are some kids that are not that interested, regardless. And there are some kids that, as an economist, we would say are on the margin. With the right incentives, they'll try it. Without those incentives, they're not that interested. That's the group that you think you're going to shift with a policy like this, these marginal triers. But for a habit that has very, very high addictiveness, particularly in this age range, shifting the marginal triers is a big deal.
1: So the other, the other question that people could pose is, you know, when you restrict something and you say, you know what, thou shalt not buy cigarettes, you 18, 19, or 20-year-old, sometimes that could make them feel like, geez, I really want to try it boy, when I turn 21, the first thing I'm going to do is go out and buy cigarettes. Or I'm really going to want to try to get somebody to, to give me some cigarettes before then. Because you've made it now a scarce commodity, kind of increasing the allure of that. Has anybody looked at that? And whether, you know, by making this something that's
2: restricted, people might want it more. Well, keep in mind, they were already restricted. An 18-year-old has just been an age where they couldn't have them. And there are plenty of alternative substances to use out there. We could talk about e-cigarettes a little bit here. But the current evidence shows that conventional cigarettes are more risky than electronic cigarettes. So if you're focusing on smoking, that is conventional cigarette use, there's some thought that maybe you could shift kids from one product to at least the less risky ones. Now, Does telling kids they can't have something lead them to want to do it more? It probably depends on who the message is coming from. But the classic Tobacco 21 law, remember, it's not saying that you punish the youth. It's saying you punish the retailers. And the retailers have control over the flow of the product in a different way. So if it's not a black market product, so we're not talking about an illegal drug, we're talking about a drug that for the most part comes through legal channels, at least at some point along the way, then penalizing the retailers, limiting their ability to profit is actually a much more effective approach than trying to find each kid who's taking a drag off a cigarette.
1: And so, fine, let's talk about retailers. First of all, how effective is the policy of actually holding retailers re- accountable for who they sell cigarettes to? I mean, you don't have necessarily a watchdog in every store making sure that they're carding everybody who's getting cigarettes. How, how is that enforced and, and how do we actually make sure that retailers aren't selling to anyone below the age of 21?
2: Because if you can't really enforce it, is it really effective? So it depends on the state. Let's talk about the age 18 laws that we've had everywhere for a second. So the FDA has authority under the 2009 Tobacco Control Act to actually enforce and run these essentially raids. They're not really raids, <laughs> to, to simulate having someone go in who looks under the age of 18 to purchase in order to catch these um, failures to comply with the law. They don't have the authority, that is, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't have the authority for over age um, 17, so for 18 plus, which means that these Tobacco 21 laws do need to designate some kind of enforcement, right, because they can't rely on the federal government to do it. Some of the laws have done that. Some policies designate, and actually what's interesting is it varies widely. Some of them designate police. Some of them designate departments of public health. Some of them don't designate anyone. And they haven't been on the books long enough for us to really test the difference in the efficacy between those different kinds of policies. Remember, the first Tobacco 21 law at the state level was Hawaii in 2016. They haven't been around that long, and a lot of the adoption, yes, 18. States have adopted these laws, but they haven't all implemented them yet. So we're still kind of waiting on that analysis. But intuitively, you're exactly right. If you can't enforce it, what do you think is going to happen? There are, beyond enforcement, also differences in the fines. So some states have minimum fines as much as $200, $300 for the first time a retailer is caught out of compliance. Some states have no minimum. Some states have fairly low maximums of about 100. Some states have no maximum. There's a lot of variation here. In the long run, I think it's going to be people doing the kind of research I do, which is looking at small, local, and state policy variation and testing the differences in the effects between them who are able to pinpoint the evidence base here. But it would be a lot easier for states in 10 years to up the size of the fine by changing that in their legislation than to institute a new fine if they haven't actually put it in there in the first place as an enforcement option.
1: So tell us a little bit. I mean, have you looked at that? Is there a particular fine that people should be instituting where it makes a difference? Because certainly if there's no no minimum fine and the maximum fine is $100 or whatever, And you're talking about large retailers, your, you know, Stop and Shops, your Walmarts, your big retailers who sell tobacco products. You know, for them, a 100 bucks is nothing. Um, And there may be no enforcement mechanism because this is run at a state or local level. I mean, it would seem like the whole rationale for going through... A tobacco 21 law may simply be to appease the people in public health who want us to push the smoking age up uh, rather than actually having meaningful effects. So tell us a little bit more about your research and whether these laws, A, are effective, and B, what are the
2: aspects of the policy that make them more or less effective? Okay, so before I talk to you about the research, let me just add one thing. It's not just financial penalties. In some states, you can pull the license from the retailer entirely. So if the threat is $100 here, $100 there, sure, a large company may not be faced by that. If the threat is you won't be able to sell tobacco products at all, now that's a big question mark on someone's bottom line.
1: So we're going to get into the whole aspect of what is really going to make these laws effective and more effective, talking a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that some of these laws have been adopted but not implemented. So how does that implementation actually correlate with outcomes in the long run? Right after we take a short break for a medical minute, please stay tuned to learn more about Tobacco 21 laws with my guest, Dr. Abigail Friedman.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at astrazeneca-us.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Abigail Friedman. We're talking about Tobacco 21 laws. So, for those who just joined us, Tobacco 21 laws are laws that essentially up the minimum age at which you can purchase tobacco to 21. These laws haven't been around for very long. Uh, Abigail was telling us just before the break that the first of these laws was adopted in Hawaii in 2016, only three short years ago. And since that time, a number of states have adopted laws, but may not have been have not, may not have implemented them as yet. And so the question really becomes, how do you make these laws effective? And there's been a real paucity of literature in that regard because these laws simply haven't been around as long. But, Abigail, you have apparently been doing some empirical studies, some estimations, really trying to think about these laws and how we can make them
2: more effective. Is that right? Right. So in July, two papers with colleagues that I co- that I lead authored came out. Um, one of them is looking at local laws. So we took advantage of the fact that, yes, state-level laws haven't been around that long. But actually, towns and municipalities, counties started adopting these laws much earlier. The first one was in Needham, Massachusetts in 2005. And then there was a long gap. And starting in around 2013, a little more, 2014, 2015, you see like New York City putting in effect these laws. So that's the early evidence we have to go on. So one of the papers with my colleague Rachel, or actually my student who has now graduated, and I can call a colleague Rachel Wu, looks at local Tobacco 21 laws and clusters of counties around urban areas. And basically what we wanted to know is, as Tobacco 21 laws are adopted by more and more counties in the cluster you live in, does your likelihood of being a smoker go down if you're under age 21? And Do we see the same effect in a slightly older age group, in 23 to 25-year-olds who, if we saw an effect there, we'd say, oh, it wasn't the Tobacco 21 law. It's got to be something else. And what we found is that on average, the 18 to 20-year-olds who were exposed to Tobacco 21 policies showed about a 10% drop in their likelihood of being smokers relative to those who were not exposed. And there was no evidence that the 23 to 25-year-olds were showing the same trend.
1: So essentially, this study showed that tobacco 21 laws are effective in that 18 to 20-year-old age group, which is the age group that you would expect to be affected.
2: Right. Though actually, it's really interesting on a few other levels. Remember, these are local laws. So you would say, well, couldn't an 18-year-old just get in the car and drive a town over? What would happen? And that's an argument that's been made by many states in this country. So there are now 16 states in the U.S. that don't have a state-level Tobacco 21 law and don't let counties and municipalities pass them at the county and municipality level. They have these policies that are called preemption policies. And the logic there is this is a waste of resources to pass these laws locally. They might not work or some other logic at the state level. But if the policies work, then what that's effectively doing is saying that the state is going to keep your town from improving its population health. And what our study shows is that these laws at the local level are associated with reduced smoking in an age group that, as you said earlier, could just ask their older friends for a cigarette. So if that's true, that means that the preemption laws are impeding public health for communities where the electorate in the local community would actually support the law. Okay, tell us about your other paper. So The other paper is also looking at 18 to 20-year-olds, but it's different. In this case, we only looked at individuals who had used an e-cigarette or a cigarette before in their life. So basically what we wanted to know was, does this do anything to people who are actually likely to smoke, right? So we looked at this group, and we looked at people living in states and counties with and without Tobacco 21 laws, and we saw was the gap in the smoking rates between those two areas for 18- to 20-year-olds bigger than the gap for 21- to 22-year-olds who wouldn't be bound by the law. And the answer is yes, the 18- to 20-year-olds were less likely to be smokers. But what's actually really interesting here is we ran a second check to look for something called a social multiplier effect. So a social multiplier effect is basically when the behavior of your peers or your family or your friends alters or reinforces your response to something. And we know because there's a lot of literature that peer smoking has a big impact on whether or not you smoke, particularly if you're an adolescent. So what we did is we said, OK, if you were friends with someone or excuse me, if your closest friends were people who used cigarettes or e-cigarettes before these laws went into effect, when you were, say, 16. Are you more or less likely to respond to them by not smoking? And you're more likely to respond by not smoking. So that's actually really counterintuitive, right? You would think the people whose friends smoke would be less likely to respond to the policy. But think of it this way. You've got a law that comes into effect that reduces your desire or ability to smoke. It's also reducing your friend's desire or ability to smoke. And your friend then affects you. So you're basically getting hit by the law twice. You're getting hit by the law directly, and you're getting hit by the law indirectly. And then your behavior affects your friend. So there's a feedback loop, which means that these laws have the potential to influence the individuals and specifically the kids who are most at risk of taking up this habit, which is really exciting.
1: So... And in this second study, you said that you were looking at people who had ever smoked or used an e-cigarette. Is Mm -hmm. that right? So if you have an 18-year-old who was a smoker, turns 19, is still a smoker, then the law happens. Now you're a 19-year-old and you're faced with this law. Are these people more likely to quit now that the law is in place and they can't get their hands on a cigarette? Is
2: that what you're telling us? So unfortunately, we couldn't look at a subgroup of people who were regular smokers and whether they quit. We didn't have enough people in the sample to do that. What I'm telling you is that the likelihood that they became habitual smokers was lower if they were in that group. So you've got lots of kids who will try a cigarette maybe once or twice and not smoke again, try a cigarette once or twice and not become regular smokers until several years later, or use cigarettes very intermittently for an extended period before they become daily smokers. So That's the group we're talking about, these people who have experimented, who've shown a higher likelihood that they might eventually become habitual smokers. Do they actually become habitual smokers? And the answer is they're less likely to transition to habitual use if they're in an area with a Tobacco 21 policy. And if they were habitual
1: smokers, we don't really know whether they were more likely to stay habitual smokers or whether they, too— became less likely to be habitual smokers because now the number of cigarettes that they could get became less. So the
2: habit had to kind of extend over a wider period of time. Yeah, we, we really don't know the answer to that question yet. And... While I'd say that I'd like to know what the answer to that is, in the long run, we're going to have kids who aren't just exposed to this at 18, they're exposed to it throughout their entire childhood. So we won't necessarily be able to run that experiment clearly because we won't be able to look at going from not exposed to exposed anymore. We'll only look at people who've been exposed their entire childhood and then become not exposed when they hit 21 if this ends up implemented more broadly.
1: So in your studies, I mean, before the break, we were talking a little bit about nuances of various legislation, some legislation that is enforceable, some legislation, the majority of which it sounds like is not enforceable, at least on the local or state level. Um, Although some states have found ways to have, you know, police or departments of public health, et cetera, uh, try to... uh, identify which retailers may be selling uh, to underage uh, people. Uh, We talked about different types of penalties for going against the law, whether it's a minor fine, if anything, versus having your whole license suspended. Were you in any of these studies able to look at the penalties on the local or state level that made
2: some of these more or less effective? So let me just be clear. It's not the majority of them that are unenforceable. In fact, all of the laws are in theory enforceable, and the vast majority of them do designate an enforcement agency and have some kind of fine. The variation is in the licensing restriction and the size of the fine and the type of enforcement agency. So in some cases, I think in one state, it's actually the Department of Homeland Security, excuse me, it's um, Border Patrol kind of task forces that are that are responsible for this. In others, it's something that's a little bit um, less loaded, like a Department of Public Health. And we couldn't really look at how this varied, in part, because during the period we're talking about, there were only three or four states that had actually implemented their laws. We were really relying heavily on the local policies. And local enforcement, of course, is going to look very different depending on whether it's at a county, a city, a town, and such. So we weren't able to test that. What we were able to show is that On average, the impact of these laws was to reduce smoking among 18 to 20 year olds, particularly among those who are likely to smoke.
1: You know, I I would also wonder in general how often, you know, individual retailers were found to be selling to an underage person. And whether a penalty was enforced, because one would think that even if that happens once, it's kind of a deterrent to everyone else because then they know that there is this policy. It's kind of like the speed limit. Right. Not like anybody speeds on the highway, um, but you're less likely to speed when you see flashing lights, you know, a few meters down the line Um Magically, everyone now follows the speed limit, right? Um, so so I wonder whether the same kind of thing applies uh, in these tobacco enforcement laws.
2: Well, this gets back to what I said earlier about the issue of the FDA not being able to enforce laws that affect non-minors for tobacco control. Prior to these Tobacco 21 laws, most states had a tobacco minimum legal sales age of 18. So the retailers couldn't sell to anyone under 18, but 18 Etc. could buy. And that could have been followed through by the FDA. There are enforcement options through the FDA for that. But when the law went up to 21, it's not clear whether the retailers will have processed that it's got to be a different kind of enforcement or that to the extent that this was federal officers trying to go and check whether or not people were complying, that that was not going to... Be funded or followed through on for the 19, 20-year-olds. If the retailers haven't processed that, they may be acting under their prior probabilities based on the under-18 enforcement. If they have processed it, it's different. But on the other hand, it's entirely possible that some of these states are doing a better job.
1: And so this radio show is not intended to tell any retailer that they should not uh, be vigilant about uh, uh, carting people um,
2: because they're, they're no longer worried about the FDA. No, in fact, they might need to be more worried if the state has given more power to a local organization to enforce. It really depends. It's not clear. We don't have the evidence to tell you which yet. What I can say is that These laws, or excuse me, these bills that are still being considered, in fact, there are two bills in the Senate right now, two separate Tobacco 21 bills, look different. And you've got to read the fine print because this is the kind of stuff they vary on. Has an enforcement agency been designated? Are they funded? What are the fines? Can they take licenses? Those kind of things are likely to matter, even if we can't test yet whether or how much they matter.
1: You know, as a public health person, um, presumably you're very interested in you know, getting these Tobacco 21 laws implemented, hopefully nationwide, t- because your s- research has already shown that you can reduce tobacco use in a key age group in adolescence. But we all know that funds are limited. And, you know, I would imagine that many states are looking at this going, yeah, so we can reduce tobacco smoking in 18 to 20 year olds by 10 12 percent whatever it is but that's going to cost us x amount of money to designate an enforcement agency to actually have them go out and do some enforcement Um, we may or may not collect any revenue from it depending on what these fines are like and how compliant people are is it worth it
2: you know If what you care about is revenue dollars at the end of the day and not saving kids' lives, that might be a valid question. But I actually think the states that are being kind of slowed down are being slowed down by a similar question, which is what will this do to our tobacco tax revenues? So I've actually seen documentation lobbying against state bills where people call into question the revenue effects. And I think the money is something people are very concerned about, but you got to think about the lives, too.
0: Dr. Abigail Friedman is an assistant professor of public health and health policy at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.